Well, hello everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. We're pleased to bring you this 23rd episode titled Corner Store and featuring our guest author, Lisbeth Meredith, who wrote Pieces of Me, a memoir about finding her kidnapped daughters. We have a terrific June lineup on the calendar. On June 10th, we welcome you to Appearances, featuring Michael Jacks, author of the renowned Knights Templar series. On June 17th, we bring you Jennifer Berg, mystery author. On June 24th, Canadian crime writer Dee Wilson will join us on the pod, and our Canada Day weekend July 1st episode will feature former Canadian parks ranger turned mystery author George Mercer. So be sure to subscribe today to Dead to Rights, the podcast, at your favorite podcast venue, and join us every week for fun chats and great insights into the book industry. I'd like to take a moment here to shout out a big thank you to UK poet Helen Burke. Helen has agreed to join us on the podcast later this year for a fabulous look at the poetry in life. Last week, I received a wonderful surprise in the mail an autographed copy of her collection titled, Today the Birds Will Sing. So thank you, Helen Burke. I'm delighted to receive it, and I will greatly enjoy the read. Over the past couple of weeks, Hubby Alec and I have been enjoying a Netflix series I'd like to share with you. Harlan Corbin's Safe is a British crime drama starring a couple of our favorites, Michael C. Hall and Amanda Abington. After his teenage daughter goes missing, a widowed surgeon in an affluent neighborhood begins unearthing dark secrets about the people closest to him. The series did have a couple of questionable elements that may or may not be seen as flaws. For example, it was just this side of plausible, and fans will have to allow some latitude on the plausibility factor. But the writing was terrific. The acting was riveting, and in all, the premise of living in a gated community, only to find out the monsters have been locked in with you, made for a creepy storyline that captures and holds the interest throughout the series. So if you haven't yet tuned in to SAFE, I highly recommend it. Now, before we join memoir author Lisbeth Meredith, I hope you'll stay with me as we present Corner Store, from my story collection, North on the Yellowhead, Carrick Publishing, 2016. Corner Store I've done many things in my 31 years, some good, some falling short of noble. If there's one deed, or rather, undeed, that still fingers the cords of my memory, One oversight I wish I could put right. It would harken back to a day 16 years ago in our local convenience store. To a girl by the name of Angelina Salvaggi. It's an excuse to say I was only 15 at the time. Even then, I was no child. Not really. In truth, Penelope Cannon has never been naive. I was fully aware that child needed my help. I just didn't know how to give it. Aunt Rachel, send me once again to the corner store for milk. 
Let me go back in time as if those 16 years had never happened. Lend me your personal road map, the one that makes you always do the right thing, even though you're half crazy at the best of times. Let me do that day over again. Maybe this time I'll be a better person. Something didn't feel right. The store was empty, except for me. It was dimly lit but clean, smelling of fresh bread, candy, and a hint of vinegar. I walked to the back where they kept the milk in tall coolers. At fifteen I was small, still am in fact, but in good shape. I lifted the heavy bag with ease. The owner, Sam Salvaggi, would normally be behind the counter. He lived with his family above the store. A pleasant man, always ready with a smile and a kind word. There were two doors at the back of the store, near the dairy coolers. The door on the left led upstairs to the family home. The one on the right led into the storage area behind the refrigerators. As I carried the milk to the front of the store, Sam's eight-year-old daughter, Angelina, appeared. She came through the storage room door on the right of the coolers. I remember wondering what she'd been up to back there. She was upset. Her eyes were red and she wouldn't look at me, even when I said, hello. She walked quickly, eyes down through the store and out the front door into the afternoon sunshine. A few seconds later, Sam, a man of mid to late thirties, came through the same door. He nodded, not looking at me, and followed me to the checkout counter. "'Good afternoon, Miss Cannon,' he said, regaining his composure and meeting my gaze. "'Lovely day out there.' His smile was friendly, if forced, and I put aside my uncomfortable thoughts of his crying daughter. "'It's perfect,' I said. "'Wish it could stay like this all summer.' "'How is your aunt?' "'She's well, thank you. "'Say hello for me. "'Tell her I'm expecting the new knitting magazines any day now.' My Aunt Rachel loved to knit. Unless you enjoyed being ridiculed at school, you couldn't wear anything she made, but that didn't slow her down. Sam Salvaggi had a standing order for her favorite crafting magazines and always set aside a copy for her when they arrived. I'll let her know. I paid for the milk. It was a short walk home to Aunt Rachel's house down the street. I took my time mulling over the encounter. Something nagged at the back of my mind, telling me I should find the girl, ask her if she was all right. But I didn't do it. Instead, I got distracted, as we sometimes do. Is that you, Penelope? Yes, Aunt Rachel. Good. Dinner's ready. How was school? I put the milk away and sat down to one of my aunt's eclectic meals, this one a strange assortment of undercooked greens and overcooked meat beside a slice of leftover pizza. Aunt Rachel was no friend of Martha Stewart. On my aunt's table, presentation took a back seat to convenience every time. I thought about mentioning the corner store encounter to my aunt, but I was hungry and the pizza was good, and frankly, I forgot. Shortly after that, Aunt Rachel sold the West End house, and we moved to a condo in the East End of Toronto. I thought about Angelina Salvaggi occasionally. 
Sometimes I'd dream about her in a nagging, guilty kind of way, but for the most part I was able to push that memory down into the place where I stored my personal regrets. Until now, sixteen years later. It was a Saturday morning, and on Saturdays I'd pick up the paper on my way to visit Aunt Rachel at the condo for lunch. Usually I would cook, badly. We had that in common. Something about the story in the newspaper made me feel uneasy. I couldn't put my finger on it at first, but then I recognized the name in the caption, Salvaggi. It was an unusual one. The photo alone wouldn't have triggered my memory. After all, the sad but beautiful young woman on the front pages of the Saturday Star bore no resemblance to that little girl from long ago. Once I made the connection, I imagined I saw something familiar in her eyes, some look she'd retained from childhood. I held the paper out to my aunt. "'What is it, Penelope?' she asked, taking the star. "'The girl. Do you remember her?' Salvaggi. The name is familiar,' she said. "'They own the store near our old house on Weyburn.' "'Oh, yes,' she said. "'I remember. Lovely family.' always had fresh bread and milk. The wife liked to knit. She read the headline aloud. Daughter returns home to nightmare. You remember that home invasion in the West End last week, I said, pointing at the picture. They didn't release the family name at the time. According to the story, the daughter was in Acapulco with her boyfriend when it happened. What a thing, Aunt Rachel said. She must be devastated. What was her name again? Angelina, I said. She had an older brother, right? Apparently he was one of the victims. Mother, father, and brother. Police haven't released all the details yet, but it sounds like it was particularly brutal. Murder always is, Aunt Rachel said. And to lose everyone, the poor girl. Yes, I agreed. That night I dreamed I was alone in the store. I rang the bell for service, but no one came. I had a shopping basket full of chocolate bars and Twinkies. I rang the bell again, frustrated. Looking for the owner, I wandered to the back where they kept the milk. I spied the door on the right, the one that led to the storage area behind the tall coolers. Suddenly I was tiny, even smaller than I am in real life. I had to reach up for the door handle. I turned it, but no one was in the storage room. The family lived in an apartment above the store, so I went to the door on the left, opened it, and called upstairs, hoping to rouse someone. Still, no one came. In a hurry to leave that disturbing place, I pulled out a twenty and set it on the counter, under the bell. I reached across the counter for a plastic bag, intending to fill it with my purchases, but when I looked in the basket, there were no chocolate bars, no Twinkies. Instead, staring up at me, was a head. My own. I woke, unable to shake a sense of horror. My inaction years earlier had obviously planted seeds of guilt. It was too late to help the child, Angelina. Whatever she may or may not have suffered back then, those days were gone. So was her immediate family. Still, I felt an urge to seek her out, to help the adult if there was any way I could. 
As a private investigator, maybe I could call on my rather tenuous contacts to gather the details the police were holding back. What good was it having friends on the force if a girl couldn't get the inside scoop once in a while? It was probably that kind of reasoning that made me so popular with Toronto's finest. Hell, why stop being objectionable now? I had a reputation to protect. Detective Darrell Francis answered on the first ring. He sounded tired. Got time for lunch today, I said. Maybe. What's it about? I'm hurt, Darrell. Can't I just buy a cop a donut now and then without having my motives scrutinized? He didn't laugh. Not everyone gets my sense of humor. I'm kind of busy today, Penelope. Is it important? It's about the Salvaggi case. Oh. We met at the Courtyard restaurant in Yorkville. Daryl is fond of schnitzel, and I like the owners, even though it's usually too much to eat, and they bring soft drinks in cans. I usually get three meals for my money. What's your interest in the case, he asked. I used to know the family. Not well. I grew up in their neighborhood. They owned the corner store. Have you heard from them lately, he asked. Not for years, but I'd like to help the daughter if I can. She was a nice girl. He chewed on that for a minute. Finally, he said, So, you're not on the tab? Nope, just a private citizen hoping to help a former neighbor. In that case, he said, I think you should stay out of it. That caught me off guard, and I looked at him with noodles dripping red sauce down my chin. Seriously, Penelope, if you're not already in it, mind your own business. I thought again about that little girl. I remembered the way she avoided looking at me, the way she trembled as she hurried out of the store. I hadn't helped her then. I think she needs my help, I said. What makes you say that? Because of what you're not saying. I get the feeling she's a suspect. He looked at the door, a classic getaway shifting of the eyes, and I knew I was right. Even though Angelina had supposedly been in Mexico where her family had been murdered, she was being considered a suspect. While I sucked back noodles, a case was being built against her. But she was in Acapulco, I said. Penelope, let it go. I can't talk about this any more. I knew better than to press him. He hadn't told me anything hadn't shared any of the details I had hoped to gather, and yet he'd told me the one thing I most needed to know. Angelina Salvaggi needed my help. Again. The family phone number was listed, but rang without being answered. I guessed it would be too hard for her to stay there, after everything that had happened. More likely she was staying with her boyfriend, Kevin McNeil, but there were too many McNeils listed in the city directory. The paper said Angelina worked at an optometrist's office on St. Clair. I narrowed it down to three with easy streetcar access and found her working reception at the first one, within walking distance of the store on Weyburn. She greeted me immediately with only a hint of a smile. At 24, Angelina was now much taller than I was. In fact, she could have been a model with her height, lean angles, and general poise. High cheekbones and large dark eyes decorated a classic Roman face. Still, there was a softness about her despite her slender features. Are you Angelina Salvaggi? I asked. 
She looked alarmed, and for a moment I thought she might run away. Do I know you? she asked. We used to be neighbors, I said. Then you knew my family. I did. I'm so sorry to hear about your tragedy. Thank you, she said. When she looked away, I realized she took me for a curiosity seeker, so I thought I'd better pretend to buy some glasses. In fact, my eyesight is perfect. I need some good quality sunglasses, I said. Can you recommend a brand? Your face is small, she said, without looking at me. Yes, and I don't like it when the frames are too wide. I think we might have something for you. She went into the back. I thought again about that storage area in the corner store, the one behind the coolers. I had to fight the urge to follow her. She returned a few minutes later with a Chanel frame, perfectly suited to my face. The kind of thing I'd never wear. Too expensive. Far too tasteful for me. It's perfect, I said. I looked at the price. $450. Kept a straight face. It comes with the case, she said. Good. For a minute there I thought I might not be getting much of a bargain. But hey, it came with the case. Is that all you need, she asked. Yes, I pulled out my visa, hoping and not hoping it would clear. It did. Have a good day, she said. Angelina, take my card. I'm a private investigator. If you need anything, give me a call. No charge. I'd like to help a neighbor. She looked startled. I instantly regretted my boldness. However, as my Aunt Rachel would point out, it's part of me, for better or worse. In any event, she allowed me to press the card into her open hand. I think she said thank you, but it was hard to be sure. She was already turning away, and her voice tripped on a sob. Some good deeds are totally selfless. Others, less so. I'm afraid this one was largely about how it made me feel, and not so much about what I could or couldn't do to help Angelina Salvaggi. I didn't hear from her for weeks, but during that time I had the sense of a wrong being righted, as if at least one black mark had been removed from my personal ledger of deeds. By the time she called, I hardly thought about her any more. My conscience felt absolved and therefore cleared so it was a surprise to hear her voice on the other end of the line. Is this Miss Cannon? Please, call me Penelope. I waited. It's a trick I learned a while back. Don't prompt the caller. Let her tell you the reason for the call. The seconds seemed to stretch, but finally she said, I need your help. We met at a Panzerati place on St. Clair, near where she worked. She told me the story leading up to her trip to Mexico. Her parents had been against it. They were a Catholic family with strong ties to the neighborhood church. They felt Angelina would hurt her reputation by going off with her boyfriend. Our last words were angry, she said. I felt they never let me have any fun. Now I can't stop thinking about it. I love them, you know. Guilt. Something I could relate to. If possible, I felt even more sympathetic to Angelina, knowing she had regrets of her own to live with. We all say and do things we're sorry for, I said. No one would think you didn't love them, just because you had an argument. The timing is unfortunate, but... The police think I arranged it all. The words were dispatched without inflection, 
emotionless. Even her voice sounded disconnected, like the electronic voice that tells you the subway doors are about to close. I looked at her, a thought worming its way into my mind. I tried to stomp on it, but it squirmed anyway. Never being one for subtlety, I said, Why do they think that? I mean, you were out of town. She thought for a moment, and when she spoke, her voice was back to its usual soft, sad timbre. I'm not sure why, but I could tell they thought so. They questioned both me and Kevin. They went easy on him, but when it came to me, they were pretty harsh. What do you need me to do? I asked. Well, I was hoping you could ask some questions around the neighborhood. I don't think Kevin or I should be seen doing that, but you could. You never know. Maybe you'll find out who did this to my family. So we could bring the killer to justice, I said. That's right, and clear my name, so the police will know it wasn't me. She moved her folded pizza around on her plate. I have money, she added. I wouldn't charge you. That's very kind. She met my eyes directly then, for perhaps the first time, as if trying to study my motivations. I remember you, she said slowly. From the store. Yes. Something about her eyes told me she remembered not only me, but that day as well, and that she understood at last why I felt I owed her. So, she said, you'll help me? I'll do my best. But I already wondered how much help I'd be to her. Something felt wrong about the whole thing. Why would the police suspect a grieving young woman who'd been out of town at the time of the murders? She didn't look like an addict, didn't behave as if she had no morals. She was a nice girl to all appearances, raised on holy wafers and family. My early sojourns to the neighborhood were unproductive. Everyone was horrified about the home invasion that had occurred in their midst. People were watchful, suspecting each other. The community threw its support behind the sad young woman who'd lost her family. The third time I rode my bike to Weyburn, I parked it outside our old house and walked up the street to the store. The sign still said Salvaggi's convenience, but it needed fresh paint. A group of teenagers were smoking in the small lot beside the store. They looked like young people in any urban center, lean and mildly intimidating, but I knew from experience there were good kids in this neighborhood. They snuck a smoke around the corner from time to time, but they didn't dare get up to any great mischief, aware of being watched by neighborhood nonas who knitted on porches up and down the streets. On a whim, and feeling youthful in my skimpy leather bomber jacket and biking boots, I decided to join them. I pulled out my card by way of introduction, handing it to the biggest boy. My name's Penelope Cannon. I'm investigating the crime that took place here a couple of months ago. You're a private eye, he said, handing my card to the next kid. Cool. Do you guys hang here often? A general shifting of eyes and shuffling of feet. Sometimes, not all the time. What about March 10th? That was a Saturday. Yeah, we were here, but we didn't see anyone strange. We talked about it afterward. Nothing happened while we were here. What time did you stay till? The store closes at 9.30. We usually hang around till 10. But that was a Saturday, another boy said. We stayed till 10.30. That's right. Did you see anyone in the family that day? 
Just the father. He was working the store. We went in for pop around nine. Did he seem normal? Yeah, he was his usual self. A real nice guy. The whole thing really sucked. Did the police question any of you? The five boys looked at each other before shaking their heads. The big guy said, Nah, we didn't see anything that would help. Otherwise, we'd have told them. What about the daughter? I let that hang, allowing them to interpret the deliberately vague question however they chose. More shuffling of the feet. She was in Mexico, one of the boys said. With her English boyfriend, another added. One of the boys snorted. What do you think of him, I asked. I was taking this purely on instinct. Her father didn't like him, that's for sure. Neither did her brother, another boy said. Had they been seeing each other long? Nope. Only since she dumped Jimmy right around Christmas time. Wait a minute, I thought. Jimmy? Who's Jimmy? I asked. Jimmy Leone. He was engaged to Angelina for three years. Then she dumped him and started going out with the English prick. How'd he take it? Was there any bad blood between them? This was getting interesting. Like a lamb, the oldest boy said. He never made any trouble. Anyway, her family and his were close. They pushed her to get back together with him. She didn't deserve him, the only girl in the group said. Jimmy's a saint. I thought it might be a good idea to track down Mr. Leone. Jimmy Leone pulled a deck chair off the stack and placed it near his own, too close for comfort. I moved it a few feet away before sitting. I looked up in time to see a hint of a smile on his face. He was full of muscle and energy. Blue eyes couldn't help their sparkle despite the circumstances of our meeting. I would not have described him as a saint. A god, perhaps, but not a saint. The kind of guy who could sell corn to farmers in Kansas, so long as the farmers were all women. He looked to be around 28, only a few years younger than me a fact that was not lost on me. They tell me you and Angelina were engaged. I threw that out with my usual subtlety. Bygones. Still, I feel bad for her. She didn't deserve that. I studied his face, the perfect blend of sorrow and regret. Have you seen her since you broke up? Once in a while we'll bump into each other. In the neighborhood. Other than that, no. We've talked a couple of times on the phone. I saw her at the funeral. So, you'd say you're still friends? Yeah, I'd say so. Like I said, I felt badly for her. You seem like a nice guy, Jim. Why'd she dump you? His eyes turned cold. We went our separate ways. I heard she dumped you for another guy, I persisted. Some English prick. Hey, it's her decision. In any way, I wouldn't call him a prick. What would you call him? The smile returned. I don't know, maybe a shoko. I racked my brain for my half-remembered Italian phrases from when I lived in Little Italy. A fool? Why? Because he doesn't see it coming. Like you didn't see it coming, I said? Maybe. The porch door opened and a middle-aged lady stepped out. She saw me and decided out of politeness to use English. Jimmy, she said. Angelina just called. Okay, okay, I'll be right in. 
He looked alarmed, as if this was an unexpected revelation he would have preferred to avoid. No need to get up. She said to tell you she'd be here around six as usual. As usual? What did that mean, I wondered. And suddenly it hit me, just like that. She's leaving Kevin, isn't she? That's what you mean by Shoko. You and Angelina are getting back together. He waved a hand, as if the answer was irrelevant. Our families were friends, that's all. Anyway, you'll have to excuse me. He stood, his patience having reached its limit. Did it ever occur to you, Jimmy, that maybe Angelina had a thing for Shokos? Get the hell out of here, he said. I'm going, Jimmy, but just so you know, I think you've been played, just like Kevin. I turned to go, was about to plant my foot on the first veranda stair, when I felt more than saw him lunge towards me. Just in time, I jumped off the veranda, my ankle twisting slightly, but protected by the sturdy leather boot. In that instant, I avoided his grasp. I knew I couldn't outrun him, but I tried anyway. Within seconds, he would reach me, but I had to give it a shot. As he grabbed my forearm, I spotted a group of teenagers on a porch across the street. Hey, guys, I called out. Penelope, how's it going? The biggest kid said. Not so good. I need you guys to walk me to my bike. Before he let me go, Jimmy turned me to face him. We're not done, he said. His charming mask was gone, and in its place was the real face of Jimmy Leone, the lion, the hunter, the man of rage who'd slaughtered the Salvaggi family in cold blood. Why? That was the question. Because she'd asked him to. Angelina, the angel of death, the little girl who despised her family with cause, with an unrelenting hatred, the woman bent on destruction. He released his grip and strode back to his house, to his mother, to the life he'd thrown away. The kids walked me to my bike, smoking and laughing, innocent of knowledge. But I knew, and I could never again pretend I didn't. My Aunt Rachel has a saying, It'll all come out in the wash, and so it did in its own way. Angelina could have carried it to her grave, but Jimmy was not made of such stern stuff. His temper got the better of him under close questioning by Toronto's homicide detectives, and the truth came barreling out. Angelina hated her father. By extension, she hated her mother and brother as well. She could never be free as long as they were alive. They had millions in savings squirreled away and wouldn't part with any of it. They wouldn't even consider helping their daughter get a good start in married life. All she'd asked for was enough to make a down payment on her own house, a house she and Jimmy could share. The old bastard was as tight-fisted as he was perverted. Then she came up with a plan. She and Jimmy pretended to be through. She took up with Kevin, the Inglese idiota, and a few months later she planned a trip to Mexico with him. This was to be her alibi. Meanwhile, St. Jimmy was known throughout the neighborhood to have taken the break up like a lamb. His own good nature was his alibi. Sometime after 2 a.m., he called the Salvaggi home to say he'd heard from Kevin about an emergency situation in Mexico involving Angelina. Mrs. Salvaggi was frantic. Jimmy promised to come right over and tell them the news in person. They let him into their home without hesitation. The lion in lamb's clothing. The End 
And this has been Corner Store by yours truly, Donna Carrick, from North on the Yellowhead and Other Crime Stories, Carrick Publishing, 2016. And now I'm pleased to bring you my interview with Lisbeth Meredith, author of Pieces of Me and Other Memoirs. Lisbeth Meredith is a writer based in Alaska with a bachelor's degree in journalism and a master's degree in psychology. She has worked as a domestic violence advocate and a children's abuse investigator and with at-risk teens as a juvenile probation supervisor. Her memoir, Pieces of Me, Rescuing My Kidnapped Daughters, is a cautionary tale of how domestic violence often escalates after victims choose to leave. It's a silver medalist for the 2017 Ippy Awards, Memoir Personal Struggles category, and a finalist in the International Book Awards and the USA Best Book Awards for Memoir. Lisbeth has published When Push Comes to Shove, How to Help When Someone You Love is Being Abused, on Amazon, and is a contributor to A Girl's Guide to Traveling Alone, by Gemma Thompson. Other work has been published in Feminine Collective, the Sunlight Press, and Jane Friedman's blog. Lisbeth is proud to be the recipient of the Alaska Humanities Forum's mini-grant and the Lynn Halterman Award. You can follow Lisbeth on Twitter or like her Facebook page. And now I'm happy to bring you Lisbeth Meredith. Let it rot. Good morning, Elizabeth. It's Donna Carrick. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you? I'm very well. Folks, this is Lizbeth Meredith, who is the author of Pieces of Me, as well as a number of other works that Lizbeth will tell us about this morning. Um, so how are you in sunny Alaska? Oh, I am just fine, thank you. This is what we call our breakup season. This is March, and so we're getting some sun, but on the other hand, we're getting a lot of melt and ice. Okay, okay. I, I have read about the meltdown season. The break, you call it the breakup season? We do. Isn't that sad? Like, <laughs> spring, we call it breakup. <laughs> Breaking up with winter, yes. <laughs> That's right. I like that. I wanted to have you on today. Um, and actually, this is a bit of a serious interview, uh, a bit of a break from the norm, because you you don't really write fiction, do you? Or do you? Maybe you do. Um, you know but what? I am, in fact, writing a trilogy that's, in fi- that's a fiction uh, series, but, but I have started off with nonfiction. Exactly, that's exactly. Right. And it's the nonfiction that I know you by, in particular, Pieces of Me, which is a very serious memoir about, um, about recovering your lost daughters. And um, some of the things that you've written about this book triggered to me and I'm sure will to a lot of people who have been in situations of domestic violence and uh, extreme trauma. So I wanted to talk to you about this and just warn our listeners that this is a bit more serious than than usual. Um, Pieces of Me is your memoir and um, one of the things that you talk about is times of year and how they can reignite trauma. And I'm sure everybody's heard about that. Well, this is the time of year that mom died, or this is the time of year, you know, and whenever it's that time of year, it does, it triggers certain feelings. Um, you talked about March memories in particular, and, uh, 
how they do trigger feelings of trauma to you and how you've worked to create new and better anniversary dates. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I wrote about that in the book some and then also in my blog more recently. I'll bet that that's also what you're referring to. Yes. But we all have them. You know, if you're over the age of five in life, you have gone through something that could be considered a trauma. And, And it's for most of us, maybe it doesn't really hit until adulthood, but, but those things divide life that happened before whatever event occurred that, that is our trauma and life that happened afterward. Mine doubled and tripled up on me. So mm-hmm. I left my, uh, my kid's father in March. My children were kidnapped four marches later. Um, you know, but then we were reunited two marches after that. And so March is always a very serious month for me, uh, a lot of reflection. Mm-hmm. And yet that's not all bad, it's, but it is emotional. And I think, like I said, you know, trauma can be a universal thing for all of us. We'll go through something. You had asked me at one point, like, what is it that people can do to help, you know, get us through these times and yes. the anniversary days? And I just thought that was so thoughtful. And by the way, I'm so excited to be on Dead to Rights. Oh, thank you. Wow, I'm really glad to have you. Yes. I'm really excited, and I am, am uh, you know, honored that you took on a serious topic. But I think one thing is to remember that I don't, I don't ever wish that somebody would forget their trauma or or just get their mind off of it. And, and if if it's something that occurs to them annually, I don't want to just take their mind off it as a friend or a loved one, you know, who's experiencing that anniversary time. But I might, if I know them well enough. Now, if it's a coworker or somebody like that, you know, they're. I just want to be sensitive to their feelings if they brought that up. I, I want mm-hmm. to be sensitive to the fact that they said, you know, this is the anniversary of my father's death. The coworker said recently, every year that really gets me. Then my dog died not long after that. Mm-hmm. So I want to be sensitive to that. For her, I may, you know, get her a card or flowers or something for. I think I would ask the person if I'm close enough to them, how would you like us, you know, how would you like to have that trauma honored? You know, what, what does that look like for you? How can I help? And mm-hmm. I know someone else whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver. And every April, um, that is a haunting thing for her. She had one child, that child was killed by a drunk driver. And the assumption of those who are close to her was that every year we would pour uh, you know, affection and attention to the fact that this was the child's passing date. And, you know, she didn't say anything at first. And then years later, she's like, I really dread this date, not because my daughter died then, but because you all make such a thing over it. Oh, oh yes. It's important to ask, I think, but often we can just be an ear, mm-hmm. uh, be empathetic without being overly sympathetic. You know, we don't need to sit and cry with them every anniversary of, of whatever they're going through, but we need to have empathy and, you know, listen and then have a sense of normalcy, too. I mean, I think that's really important mm-hmm. for people to know. It's like, you know, that life does, there are other things going on in life. Yes, we yes. We we have well. um, we have very busy lives, all of us, these days. I mean, that's just the nature of the world. And sometimes... As a person who has lived with various forms of trauma and um, and has suffered PTSD and has had to find ways to really overcome that, um, one of the things is that sometimes we don't even always know 
like a certain time of year will come around, um, I'm thinking in particular of my older sister's death, that time of year will come around and my mood will shift. And for many years, I wasn't even always really aware why my mood was shifting, you know. Um, so we're not always really self-aware about it, but it definitely happens. That is absolutely correct. And I think one thing we're teaching people about in my workplace, but all over the place, was just on 60 Minutes the other day, is something we call trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. But it's, it really basically boils down to when we give everyone that comes in our path the benefit of the doubt, knowing that they may be going through something big that we know nothing about that drives their behaviors. Yes. And what I don't mean is that everyone can be unaccountable and, and the world will go crazy and there won't be structure, but know that we give people enough respect and that we acknowledge that sometimes we don't even have to know what it is, but we can assume that a person is going through something that we know nothing of. Yes, and I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. That's something... That they do too. Yeah, that's something that my husband has always said, and he always reminds the children, that everybody you encounter is going through something that you are not aware of. So you, you do have to approach the world with that knowledge. And as you said, it doesn't take away accountability for actions, but it does perhaps add a layer of understanding. I think that is so important. I love that he does that. And tell him now there's a label for it. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I'll tell him 60 Minutes agrees with him. <laughs> Yes. Teaching people about the importance of expressing uh, healthily, expressing their trauma so it doesn't get trapped in the body and create health and mental health problems later. So it, it truly is science on yes. our side now. Well, it really is a science. And in fact, there's a study that I, I signed on for, but I haven't been particularly diligent about doing my end on it. But uh, I was fascinated with it. It's called uh, the Ontario Health Study. I'm located in Ontario. Um, and one of the things that they are trying to assess is if you've had childhood trauma, how does it inform your physical health later in your life? Um, because they think they're finding a lot of correlations between cancer or bowel disruptions or heart disruptions, these kinds of things, and severe childhood trauma. So, yeah. Even a, even a reduced life expectancy by 20 years or an earlier death if it's if so many traumas double up and it's a child's life mm -hmm. double triple whatever up that it literally impacts their health so incredibly that their whole life may be shortened and it certainly impacts suicide attempts and substance abuse and things like that so it's not all sad news because what the more we know the more we realize what we can do to help people. And it's not a life sentence with trauma. It's just that we have to acknowledge it and then find that help that we need to yes. be able to heal. And I think we have to be conscious of putting ourselves into situations that are healthy for us. Um, I've been really blessed, for example, in having a, a really wonderful family who do not add new layers of trauma to my life. And uh, they're, they're just wonderful and they're understanding. And that has really helped to, I think that you never really rid yourself of these things, but what you do is you learn how to live around them. Like uh, a tree will have a, a knob or a gnarl on it. It doesn't stop the tree from growing and being proud and strong. And I think that that's true with humans too. We can have these, these things in our lives and we can acknowledge them 
but we can still live around them and live really, really good lives. I wouldn't trade my life right now for anyone I know. So I love that. Yeah. That's wonderful. We can incorporate it. We absolutely can. I mean, I do feel like we can do a lot to alleviate the symptoms, but I also feel like with the rest, we incorporate it, and sometimes there are some amazing things we can do with it, whether it's writing or helping and connecting with others who've experienced something similar, mm-hmm. all of that, or just being grateful every day. That, yes. You know, yesterday I had a bad day at work, and I thought, my bad day at work today is nothing like what I was going through <laughs> when I was in the thick of having my kidnapped daughter. So, yes. you know, yes. sometimes there's that, just remembering what a great quality of life there is today. Yeah, now not without triggering any uh, undue stresses. Are, are you particularly comfortable about uh, talking about pieces of me and what um, inspired it, the events that inspired it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I have done a, so many events now that I'm pretty, you know, I'm used to it. We've done a lot of book groups and um, toured around the United States, some doing university events which was really, really special. I paid for it, but it was so worth doing. I just love doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's something I'm used to to talking about. But, you know, it's a lot. It it never gets to the point where I think, oh, that was nothing. Because it's very personal, you know, when we talk about our lives. And for me, as a very young person who's gone through a lot as a kid, family, uh, parental kidnapping, domestic violence, lots of divorces, chaos, a lot of abuse, and then missing siblings. Mm-hmm. I remember growing up and thinking as a little girl, I am going to be different. I will not be somebody who divorces. My kids will never have to look up a parent through an attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, there won't be parental kidnappings, no domestic violence. I am going to do things differently because I am different. And I thought that that good intention was enough. I was so wrong. Yes, <laughs> I yes. Was so wrong. <laughs> and the truth is, you are different, and that's how you manage to persevere in the end. Um, you know, because I've I've asked myself this question: What is different about survivors than? Um, and I I don't want to overcredit it. I really don't, because some people are so hurt that it's beyond their own understanding or ability to overcome. And I don't want to be blaming the victim. But there is a strength in us when we do overcome, and I, I can feel it and I can credit it back. Um, I had a really dear aunt, and you talked about this a little bit too, about the people who help us in ways that they don't even know. I had a very dear aunt who took me in for about six months of my very early childhood because my mother was sick with tuberculosis. And I suspect that that six months in the first two years of my life And actually, I have to insert a small correction. I keep saying six months of my life, but it was 18 months of my life, starting when I was six months old. So this aunt took me in for 18 months. May have saved me um, because it, it just gave me a little bit different early childhood experience than what my sister had. And we both otherwise lived... We lived very similar lives, but my sister was never separated from the trauma and the abuse, and I was separated from it for 18 months in the first two years of my life. And I've often thought that it may have been that that gave me the strength to see beyond that. 
right. I love that. And I like that you can kind of do the autopsy of your childhood and look at that now impartially and think that was really a buffer. While other people might have thought it was really sad that you had to go somewhere, it really helped you out. And for me, I, I have to say that I had good intentions, but then the moment someone showed me attention and seemed to love me and wanted to be with me constantly when I was a young adult, yeah, uh, very young, I dove right in and didn't think a thing of it because I was sure that my intentions were enough. They were not mm-hmm. at all. And I really made plenty, plenty of mistakes in my choice. And then for my children, things turned out so much worse yeah. than I could have ever imagined. So um, I will say that the, the wonderful thing is that you know, I wanted to get help, and there was help out there. We have a lot mm-hmm. of community resources and caring people in my community, and that's so important. But by that point, the da- there had been a lot of damage when children witness violence mm-hmm. or when they're taken from a parent um, and isolated. It can be very, very crushing. Oh, yes. And, it, you know, my children were gone for two solid years. They were not taken until four years after I ended my marriage. Mm-hmm. So four years we had been separated. And, and there, there is no involved. end to the terror of a domestic violence situation. And I know this because my first marriage, I did the same thing as you. I made so many mistakes and I had such great intentions and things were going to be different. And uh, I never, ever post my maiden name online. And there's a reason for that, because he stalked me for many years after I left. Um, it was very violent. And uh, there's no end to the terror. Um, a couple right. of times uh, through the years when I was younger, I, I'm much older now, but through the years I would receive a call at work from presumably an attorney saying that he died and he left me money and all I had to do was contact this place or go this place. I think he died at least three times that I knew of. Um, you know, there were he would, uh, have, he would have old friends of mine call my mother to get my new number to the point where I had to tell my mother, if my unlisted number is ever found out again, I'll have to separate from you and I won't be able to give you my number. Um, because of course, once somebody, and this was in the days before all the technology we've got now, but in those days, if somebody with a little bit of savvy had a telephone number, they could find out where you were. That's so terrifying. I think one of the things I wanted readers to understand when reading my memoir, and there are many hopeful and hopefully some humorous moments in there too, but I do want people to understand that overall, when we have family or friends in an abusive relationship, what we don't want to do is tell them exactly what we wish they would do. We don't want to say, you ought to leave. You really just need to leave. Why would you put up with that? Because the unintended consequences of leaving abuse can carry on for decades. Yeah. And so while it's wonderful to say I'm very concerned about you, I hope you know what support you have, what community resources, that I'm here for you, that I believe you deserve to be treated well, Yeah. that um, your kids are going to be impacted or are being impacted by what's going on. There is no question. Yeah. But that's far different than saying... You need to do this thing. Um, and so I really do want people to understand that piece of, of about domestic violence and about the idea of being a survivor that looks different for everyone. Yeah, and you hit on something really important, the, um, the sense that one is worthy of better treatment. Um, 
And I know that you're giving back to the community quite a bit now yourself. And so I, I'm sure that you've encountered a lot of stories, uh, some of which you probably wouldn't be at liberty to talk about. But um, that sense of worthiness is really the key, isn't it? You know, it really is. And as humans, depending on how we grew up or how we feel about ourselves, maybe independent of that even, we don't always feel like we deserve to be treated well. And so sometimes we just have to start telling ourselves this narrative that's new to us, even if we don't believe it. You know, there used to be something on Saturday Night Live where Stuart Smalley would say, I look in the mirror. There was a character who would look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And darn it, people like me. And it was a comedy. And we were supposed to laugh about that. It's absolutely what we do need to do. And any of us who have come out on the other side of that black tunnel, we we know darn well how we got here. And it really is through the self-talk. It really is. Right. Yeah. That's right. I, I spoke with a woman last week who's going through a horrible situation. And she, you know, we talked. She's been separated for a while. But I said it's so important that you don't continue to repopulate the negative messages through self-talk that you had those years in your marriage, you know, it's so easy to do as a reflex because if you've been talked down enough, whether it's through marriage or your family childhood or at school being bullied, it's easy to then say negative things to yourself when you're out of the situation. You just keep repeating those messages quite by accident. That's right. It really is important to not do that. Yeah, yeah, uh, that is quite true, yeah. Um, I do want to talk to you about some of your more recent titles, too, because that was a point in time, and I, I think a very important one and a real critical one to your writing career. But you've done a lot since then. Can you tell us about some of your other titles, and in particular, the series that you're working on right now, the trilogy that you're working on? I would love to. I've done, you know, after I finished my memoir, just before it, I, I had completed When Push Comes to Shove, and that's really a tiny little uh, a digital handbook that's just, you know, how to help when someone you love is being abused. So I love, I, I, I do really appreciate that little handbook because often people don't know. We're not trained to know how to help people. Yeah. So there is that available, but I wrote a number of essays, and one was through Feminine Collective, another through Sunlight Press that talks a little bit about my oldest daughter's trauma kind of after the book ends off, um, because that story didn't really end. It just ended with my book. Um, yeah. So we talked some about that and uh, acesconnection.org about adverse childhood experiences. But right now I'm excited to be working on something a little more fun. Because believe it or not, a lot of life is funny, even even if we're going through trauma. And oh, so, yeah. And you, you really do have to laugh. My mother used to say, you know, you've got to laugh, right? <laughs> right? And she Absolutely. was such a sturdy really little soul. move away from being, you know, only writing about trauma or tragedy or domestic violence. And mm-hmm. so I began a trilogy that follows a character named Tilka, uh, an Alaskan middle-aged woman through her 40s, 50s, and 60s. And in the first novel that is complete, but where I'm going through second edits, um, her daughters, who are near to leaving the nest as Tilka, you know, enters her 40s, sit her down and say, basically, Mom, you're alone a lot, you're kind of lonely and pathetic, you're going to be losing your look soon, you really need to start looking to find the man of your dreams, you've been single parent a long, long time, it's time to, because we're moving on, and we're, we've been baby watching over you, and uh-huh. uh, so 
in her relationship with her therapist, actually. her I don't mean an inappropriate relationship. I mean her work with her therapist, uh, who happens to be a man. And she, Selka decides to strike out on her own and, and really embrace things like online dating and getting fixed up and maybe some speed dating, trying to find the man of her dreams. Mm-hmm. Maybe coming to the conclusion that it's a good idea to embrace becoming the woman of her dreams and yeah. make that the focal point, and perhaps she'll meet someone along that process. The next one, Tilka writes a book in her 50s, which is fun, and then in her 60s, it, it continues from there, because it's just all different points in a, a middle-aged woman's life. Mm-hmm. And identity shifts, and some things go away, but that doesn't mean that there aren't more things coming toward us as we age. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I believe that completely, and that sounds like a really great trilogy. What is the trilogy called? Well, that's just it. It's not finished yet. Oh, right okay, so you're not ready to title it yet. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Right, yeah. but, but the main character is Tilka, and I will be leaving updates on my author Facebook and on my website as we get closer to publication. Lisbeth, what's your website address? It is lameredith.com. LAMeredith.com. So look for Lisbeth Meredith there, and you can find out everything that she's up to right now. Now, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, Well, the main one that I want to ask you is, do you have any tips for people who want to write a memoir specifically? I sure do. I love uh, working with people writing a memoir because writing is a lonely business. And so one of the things that I did was I joined a, an organization, the National Association of Memoir Writers, but there are many others across our world. Um, but it, for me, it was really helpful to have someone to touch base with once in a while or a Facebook community and also tell us our webinars and phone calls that we could make to each other to encourage each other once a month. Mm-hmm. I would suggest that the person write their, write their life story unvarnished, just write everything without worrying who's going to read it, is it going to be published, will my aunt ever forgive me, will mm-hmm. my children despise me or love me? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't worry about that first draft. It's important just to write your story because I feel like that first draft really helps you understand what it is you want to say to your reader. And every book, whether it's self-help or fiction, or memoir has to have benefits for the reader. Mm-hmm. And so there is usually in memoir, there's a period of growth that you're covering. It's not an autobiography. It's a period of real growth, whether that's going in a good direction or a horrible direction. There is a narrative arc. Mm-hmm. And so finding out what that is in your story as you're writing that first draft, what is it that there was life before and then life after that changed you? You were transformed mm-hmm. by this experience. Because the reader isn't wanting to know how horrible it was that my kids were kidnapped. That, that is horrible. I'm not suggesting it wasn't. But they're really interested in how do we move on? How mm-hmm. do we grow and, and work toward resilience as best we can? Yeah. And receive help and not get into further bad situations when possible. Mm-hmm. Um, when when things are preventable, anyway. And the same for anyone's memoir. There, there's got to be something that the reader's going to benefit from reading. What is it that you want to offer them? Mm-hmm. And so being in a group, being in a critiquing group, but 
writing, maybe not sharing your first draft with all of your family members. That's my experience anyway, not at first. Mm-hmm. Just go ahead and write it. And then at a certain point, I wanted to work with a professional, an editor that I hired to say, okay, mm-hmm. t- you tell me what seems completely unnecessary. Boy, and then, you know, be careful what you ask for because I lost 100 pages. Oh. So, <laughs> Wish I could lose weight as quickly as an editor can lose pages. <laughs> I know. It turned out my readers weren't going to be that interested in all my childhood pets or every boyfriend I'd ever had as a kid. Or, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. No, but you, you've hit some really key points. I mean, one is, and we don't always think about this, writers, uh, professional association. A few authors have mentioned to me that one of the key things they've done is network professionally, either through a pro- professional association or critique groups or any of the various forms of networking that we authors have. And I'd never even thought about a professional memoir writers association. Um, That's just fascinating. Um, And the second thing is make sure that there's a value for your readers. And I think the third thing you said there was have the courage to write it regardless of whether your aunt's going to forgive you or not. Just write it and don't think about it because there's an awful lot of courage involved in memoir writing. Most writers who write fiction will tell you if they're honest that fiction is a delivery system for the truth because we shy away from the real unvarnished truth. And it takes a certain kind of writer and a certain kind of person to be able to just plop out a memoir and say to hell with it. You know, and I was I was just saying the first draft write it all out, but there are there comes a time in my experience that then you really want to think about the impact of the people yes. you wrote about. Yes. Do you need to change names? Do you need to run it by them as a courtesy? When I started writing this book, I even wrote a little essay about this, but when I started writing it, I was thirty one years old. I was headstrong. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get even with people, the detective that tried to uh, trade sexual favors to help me get my kids. You know, the politician whose assistant wanted to make a date. I wanted to shame them. Yeah. And that was part of my age and part of coming out of a trauma and all of that. As I got older, some of that softened as I found more healing and I realized the world didn't need more ugly vitriol released yeah. into yeah. the earth. I can so tell you it is really already there. We don't have to add to it. I mean, my mother exactly. told me stories of... I mean, the situation that we all lived in was quite horrendous, and uh, various times she tried to leave or she tried to get help, and uh, certainly there was a CL on a base who tried to exploit her sexually and said that he would help in, you know, the situation. So it's out there. It's out there, and you're right. I mean, the world doesn't need it compounded. Exactly. So I mention it in the book, but I don't, it doesn't take a chapter. It doesn't take, it doesn't go off in a different direction because, you know, there was a different story to tell. However, uh, you know, I do want people to write the first draft without worrying. And then you start to get a little more cautious as time goes on. And, you know, for me, I even one advantage to belonging to a memoir association, which there's a lawyer talking about, uh, who did a workshop about liability. And Mm -hmm. even if you change names, what, what you should worry about, this, that, or the other thing. But, you know, it's not that you don't want to tell your truth, but you want to figure out how to tell it smartly. And you also want to figure out how to tell it in a way that benefits your reader and to make sure that you're not doing it just to sort of 
great yeah. on uh, yes on certain individuals. You know, I, I did want my book to have some grace to it because I've been extended a lot of grace, and I did mm-hmm. not want to be a, a book that people felt down when they finished it. Well, speaking to you now, I can tell you that you do exude a lot of grace, and uh, it, it I think that should be an inspiration to anyone who has stories like this to tell. I, I'd love to see more people come out, and I think with the Me Too movement and the Never Again movements and all of these movements, we are starting as a gender to recognize our voices, but those voices don't have to be hate-filled, no matter what we've gone through. Um, I've had so many people who have come up to me as a fiction writer, people that I work with, colleagues, you know, people who are not in the writing industry, so they don't really get it. Oh, you write murder mysteries. Great. You could kill off this person or you could kill off that person. And of course, we all laugh when we tell these little jokes. But the truth is, it's not what I write for. You know, I don't write to kill off the people I don't like. I'm very much a live and let live person, you know. Right. Yeah, no, they do. They they always laugh when they say it. They think it's, you know, quite clever. Like, as a fiction writer, you've never heard that before, right? Oh, God. I had one say to me, um, I hope you've got a book coming about how you kill off that red-headed bastard in the corner office. <laughs> well, no. Oh, my. Well, no. Actually, I kind of like that guy, so... <laughs> funny. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got to tell you, Elizabeth, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much for coming on Dead to Rights. Um, I hope that I'll have you back again sometime when you've got uh, the the trilogy all in completion and you can talk to us about it. I will absolutely love that. And Donna, it's been a pleasure to be on Dead to Rights. Thank you so much for today. I I very much have, have appreciated it. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Lisbeth Meredith for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, donnacarrick.com. Join us next week when we bring you with pleasure Michael Jacks, author of the Knights Templar historical crime series. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, as is all of our story scoring music. So thank you, Ted. Thanks everyone for joining us. See you next week.
I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides